Welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path, a podcast where we've set out to bust the myth that physicians can't venture outside the traditional clinical or research career path. My name's Shad, I'm an MD, and Harvard MBA student interested in healthcare investing and innovation. And my name is Alex. I'm an MD pursuing an Oxford Computer Science PhD, Harvard MBA, and a Stanford Master's in Bioengineering. And I'm interested in healthcare investing and entrepreneurship. Our guest today is Shiv Gaglani. He's the co-founder and chief executive officer of Osmosis, which makes a popular web and mobile learning platform used by more than 3 million medical and allied health professionals and 30 plus medical schools. After graduating magna cum laude from Harvard College in 2010 with degrees in engineering and health policy, Shiv began his medical degree at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, from which he's currently on leave, and earned his MBA from Harvard Business School in 2016. Shiv, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Physicians Off the Beaten Path. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, absolutely. We've been really, really looking forward to this conversation for a while. Alex and I, you know, we always go through our list of upcoming guests. And Alex in particular has been really, really excited for today because he's used your product so often and it's really helped him in the past. So, And we'll talk a little bit about osmosis and a couple of other things in your journey. But let's start from the very beginning. So Shiv, your journey towards medicine and entrepreneurship is, you know, honestly very fascinating. After graduating from Harvard in 2010, with degrees in, I believe, engineering and health policy, you started your medical journey, right, at Hopkins. Can you walk us through your story, you know, your upbringing, your experience during college, and your decision to actually go to medical school? Yeah, happy to. Um, so my my family were Indian. Uh, they were Sindhi, specifically. So my grandparents were refugees, actually, during the 1947 partition from Sindh, which is now modern-day Pakistan, to uh, Bombay and Bangalore, which is where they wound up settling. So they were refugees. My parents, uh, my mom is a physical therapist. My dad's a retired physician. Uh, they um, were immigrants. So they moved, they moved over to Africa, where my dad found work as a physician in Namibia, where I was born. And then uh, I grew up first five years in South Africa. My dad was uh, superintendent of a hospital. And so I would go to him, go basically babysitting. He'd babysit me and bring me to the hospital where I'd wind up playing with kids in the pediatric ward where he would be, he and the pediatricians would be treating um, children. And, you know, I got a really early exposure and interest. Uh, one, because I saw what he was doing to make the lives of those children and their their families better. And, and then the respect I saw that he earned from them because he and the fellow clinical staff, the nurses, the PTs, like my mom, were, were helping, uh, helping their lives so much. And so, when, when we all moved to the U.S. in 1995, um, we settled in Florida, where there was a big need for physical therapy, which is why my mom was able to get in to uh, the U.S. on that uh, degree. Uh, we moved to Cape Canaveral, Florida, which is um, where the shuttles take off. And now the rockets, the SpaceX and other rockets are taking off. So it was a high-tech atmosphere. A lot of my classmates, their parents were engineers at NASA. Um, and so that's where my interest in both my family kind of business of healthcare merged with high tech and I started getting really interested in 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 tech and I know uh, like Alex for example you do uh, AI um in healthcare with EMRs like that stuff has always fascinated me is super exciting um and so I went to Harvard majoring in biomedical engineering to be able to combine this love for engineering and healthcare and I went to med school thinking I would wind up doing a medical device entrepreneurship I started writing for Medgadget did a lot of stuff for digital health and, and really grew up in that in that space. I co-authored a paper with Eric Topol, who, as you know, is, has written a bunch around AI and medicine and whatnot. And only when I went to med school was you know I didn't I didn't actually wind up making it that far. I made it through the preclinical years before I was like, wow, this stuff can be taught much more effectively. And that's where my co-founder Ryan and I decided to to start working on what would eventually become osmosis. But that's kind of in a nutshell how the healthcare and engineering backgrounds uh, merged. No, very, very helpful, Shiv. And, and one of the things that I was thinking about when you went into your answer is just such a, who you are right now is such a rich culmination of all of the diverse and rich experiences and locations and places you've been. And, and that resonates with Alex and I as well, right? Alex is half Syrian, half Ukrainian, grew up sort of all over the world. I grew up in Bangladesh and Canada, and we've brought little parts of ourselves from all those different areas to where we are. And I really appreciated you mentioning, you know, moving 
moving to Florida and getting exposure to tech really early on and how that influenced you. A lot of us, myself included, have didn't get that exposure, you know, quote unquote, off the beaten path until I came to HBS or just before coming to HBS. And getting that early can be very transformative. So really, really appreciate you uh, giving us an arc, a storyline of your whole story. And parts of those really resonated with both me and Alex. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you and your co-founder, Ryan, decided to do with Osmosis. A, a fascinating, fascinating story, really. Um, so you took the bold decision to take a leave of absence during medical school to pursue your dream of building you know, a supplemental online education company for health professionals. And the dream came true with Osmosis. While the original focus, my understanding is, of the original focus of the company was medical students that soon expanded to nursing dental and pharmacy students as well. And I'm sure many in our audience members are fans of the platform and they're curious how it actually came together. So can you talk to us a little bit about how the idea originated, what the obstacles early on were and how you overcame them and got it off the ground and and what advice in general do you have for folks that are in a similar position that you were in, you know, five, 10 years ago, you know, how, how can they take their startup idea to the next level like you did? Well, yeah, that's uh, that's a lot to cover, and I'm happy to happy to dive into it. So, actually, just this week, I've had several meetings with uh, current students who are, you know, either interested or already running startups, um, a second year medical, a second year sophomore at Vanderbilt, an undergrad, and a first year at St. George University in Grenada. So, it seems like there's a lot of interest in combining, uh, you know, in basically applying this, you know, medical slash education background to tech and entrepreneurship. So. The the real problem was one that we faced and countless other medical students have faced. Uh, I know you two probably have faced it too, which was the fact that learning medicine is very difficult um, for three reasons. One, it's just such a massive amount of information, uh, too much for any one person to learn, which is why you, you know, Shad, you specialize in surgery and someone else specializes in, specializes in endocrinology. Um, There's way too much for one person to know. Number two, it's high stakes, right? It isn't like learning math or language where, you know, clearly that that matters, but you know, if you forget to prescribe pulmonary function tests to somebody who's taking bleomycin for testicular cancer, you could actually hurt their life uh, and, and your career in the process. So it's super high stakes, a lot of money tied up in that, that field. And number three is it's dynamic, right? If we were doing this podcast three years ago, very few of us would actually care what a coronavirus is. And now we're doing it. It's like, that's all we've been talking about for years. Um, so things change. Our understanding of diseases, drugs, guidelines change. And so we, had, we wanted to build a platform that would solve for these three issues and basically not just be a Quizlet or a, or a test bank like UWorld or something. It actually would understand more about you as a person, your interests, what you've learned in the past, and then start actively um, sending you information that would keep you fresh. Um, so, for example, you know, when we started the platform, we wrote a paper called what can medical education learn from Facebook and Netflix? And the whole understanding was, you know, Netflix knows more about you as a person than some of your closest friends and family based on what you watch and, and how often you watch it. Same with Facebook, same with all these other platforms. And so if we know that a first year medical student named Chad is interested in surgery, we can start pushing you actively content around surgery um, because we know that's what you're intending to match in. Um, so it isn't just about passing the USM the exams. It's about knowing you as a person, putting in that data and starting to recommend content to you. We also understood we needed a content strategy around this because everything around us was getting more visual and shorter form, right? We started med school where Facebook was the dominant platform. We ended, uh, well, we, we took time off med school, but I, when I went to business school to HBS, like you guys, I was 2014, 2016. By then YouTube, Instagram, these visual platforms were the most dominant. And so we said, we need a content strategy that's focused around video and short form video. Take these 60 minute inefficient lectures that all these PhDs and, and, uh, and, and, and scientists are trying to give, turn them into six minute vi- uh, videos. And so we recruited Rishi, our chief medical officer from the Khan Academy and uh, his whole team. And they decided to join us. And now we have over 2000 videos that have essentially made what you learn in the didactic years of medical, nursing, PA, dental school, virtual. And now we have clinical content and, you know, we'll probably get into this. We joined Elsevier a couple of months ago. We have an even more rich uh, product portfolio that we can do, use to offer not just medical education, but patient education and engagement, as well as continuing education and 
um, that that's part of our, our whole vision. Thank you for outlining that, Shiv. And the, the point you made about visual platform and their increasing importance in our lives is a very insightful. I, I didn't sort of actively think about it that way, but I'm remembering what I used. And I'm kicking myself for not using osmosis during medical school. I was using Sketchy Micro and Pathoma. I'm sure you're familiar with those two for microbiology and pathology, but they were much better. I mean, Cornell was great. And no, no, I'm not throwing shade at Cornell, but like they were much better than sitting in classes for 60 minutes, 90 minutes and listening to lectures. And so the insight is a very powerful one. And the space is moving in such robust ways. Obviously, what you're doing with osmosis, I was talking to a founder just the other day. Uh, he's also a fellow Forbes 30 under 30 like you, and he's creating basically an AR VR company and, and their go-to-market strategies actually starting with medical education. I thought that was quite interesting. And so there's so much happening in this space that's, I think, worth talking about. The other thing I wanted to mention is engagement, right? So you, you mentioned the importance of engagement. It's something Alex and I think a lot about. As we mentioned, you know, we're sort of thinking and ideating about the digital therapeutic space, and, and we have a vision of, of what the space is going to look like down the line, and engagement is a big component of that because, as we know, compliance is an issue, not just with traditional pills, but also with these digitized you know, CBT or whatever interventions that are out there right now. So everything resonates perfectly there. You mentioned Elsevier at, at the very end there. Let's talk about that. That's obviously huge, huge news. Congratulations. Last year, Elsevier acquired Osmosis. I'll keep it brief. Tell me a little bit about the partnership, You know how it came about, and what y'all's grand plans are, uh, and why did it feel like the right move to you? Yeah, no, and and you know we uh, we this is part of the start of roller coaster is and how things kind of come back uh, in interesting ways. So I first met folks at Elsevier back in 2013 when we left med school. Our first year going on this full time. I obviously went to business school, so I wasn't full time in between. And essentially, the idea was we wanted to pitch them on licensing some content. We didn't have our own content, but we said, "Hey, what if we put Elsevier books?" and netters, flashcards and stuff into osmosis and then can start recommending it along with our, um, uh, along with people's PowerPoints and, you know, whatever they upload to the platform. And they love that idea. And many of the people there, actually everyone I met there at that time in that meeting in Philadelphia is still at the company. Uh, and they kept in touch. They did a really good job of keeping in touch. And it was give a good vote of confidence to me that this is a company that really values its people. The fact that Everyone I've met there has been there for 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Their CEO, Kumsal, has been there 18 years. She's had two kids while she's been there. She was HBS 2001. The CEO of Relics, which runs, which uh, owns Elsevier. So Elsevier is a $3 billion company. Relics is a $7 billion company, uh, $60 billion market cap. The CEO of uh, Relics is also HBS. He was 1988 from Sweden. He was a uh, Fulbright scholar, uh, Eric Engstrom. So very HBS heavy company. Um, and so they they kept in touch and they had made for it, you know, overtures about maybe buying us at some point. But but we had a lot of you know interest. We raised money from VCs. Graycroft and Felicis ran uh, our seed and Series A respectively. A bunch of HBS professors, including Jeff Buskang, whom, whom I know you, you guys know and probably have taken his class launching Tech Ventures, which was really influential to me back in the day. He invested and the HBS people invested. So very good HBS story. Another shout out would be Jody, Jody Gurnan from the Rock Center, I think has done a wonderful job and the whole Rock Center has been really supportive of osmosis over the years. So we kept in touch with them. We didn't burn any bridges. In fact, we kept them, you know, as friends and kept, you know, continuing license some content here and there. Um, and then last year, you know, things were heating up. Like we had all these Series B offers and interest in raising a, another round, uh, tens of millions of dollars. And some of our other companies in the space who we're friends with, we like these folks. Obviously, in some ways we're competitors, but I think overall, we are all trying to improve health education, which is a noble goal. It isn't like we're two oil companies competing for the same oil well. In fact, we're all, I think we're all ultimately competing against Netflix and Instagram for people's time and attention. If we can get them to engage with their own healthcare, uh, consume more health information, maybe make a lot of them into doctors and nurses or help them along that way, which society needs, that's what we want to do. So we're fr I'm friends with Imagine at Amboss and Seaver. I like Stefan and Peter at Lecturio. You mentioned Sketchy, Shad. I love the sketchy guys, Andy, um, and, and um, uh, you know, there's two Andrews actually there right now, and Saud Siddiqui, who's there. Um, so we're, we've maintained really good friendships. And some of the, you know, we've had opportunities to merge with companies. We've had opportunities to, to buy other companies. Um, and, um, 
And I think I'm just very invested in like the ecosystem and building those strong relationships. So when Elsevier came back to us last year and was interested in, in buying us, we decided this could be the right way because they will accelerate our vision. Our vision, is, our big hairy audacious goal is to educate a billion people by 2025. And if you pause and think about that, there are never going to be a billion physicians and nurses and doctors uh, and, um, and physical therapists and health professionals. The reason we say a billion is because so many of our people who consume our content, uh, we've had over 70 million unique views of our content, uh, actually over, over a quarter billion views, over 70 million unique people have consumed osmosis content, are patients and family members. We, every day we get messages from patients who are like, wow, I, I was in the hospital with appendicitis. Your video really helped me understand what was going on in my body. Or my son has asthma. Uh, thanks so much for this video. Like I truly understand what, what this is about. And so we strongly believe in taking our content, simplifying it, making it accessible so that doctors and patients are speaking the same language. And then with Elsevier, they two years ago acquired a company called 3D4 Medical, which makes complete anatomy. One of the top anatomy viewers, they just released this amazing 3D anatomy model of the female body, which is the first of its kind. So within two years, Elsevier had helped them translate that entire platform into Spanish and Mandarin. And they're already working with us and giving us the resources and expertise to translate osmosis into Spanish. Alex, we, before the podcast started, we talked about our work in Syria with thousands of Syrian medical students and many of our mutual friends like Basil Amin and, and uh, Lamia Kuba uh, led a team to translate osmosis content into Arabic. But it was very much a volunteer based. And while they did a fantastic job, now with the resources of a $60 billion company that's Relics, we're really excited about them translating our content at scale into other languages which gets us closer to that billion people educated by 2025. So we are really excited by what Elsevier can do for our vision, the culture they have. Um, they have 50 global offices. Um, you know, just today I was on a call with someone in France, Amsterdam, Egypt, and Japan, um, and Poland. All these are now my colleagues. I went from a hundred teammates at Osmosis to about 9,000 at Elsevier. Um, and then the third is obviously like any startup founder, you know, we look out for our shareholders, including the founders, but early employees who took a risk on joining Osmosis, early investors who took a risk on putting money into Osmosis. And we wanted to make sure that everyone, whether they spent their time or their money or both, got a good return. And we were really happy to be able to, to have done that for, for everyone involved. Um, so those were the three reasons we decided it made sense to, to become part of Elsevier. And we're really, really happy with the decision. Yeah, Shiv, there's so much there to reflect on. For the sake of time, I'm going to be brief with my comments, but I love the HBS connection everywhere. You know, I think it, it's sort of, and we've mentioned this to our audience members before, HBS is sort of certainly helpful in terms of connections, but there's many, many ways you can actually, even if you go to a new city or a new country, you can, you know, sign up for events. You can you know, always reach out to people that went to your school and reach out to alumni and, and all these different things. You can find creative ways to meet people. But HBS certainly has helped me and Alex, and it seems like you as well, in, in achieving our dreams. So really appreciate that component. You mentioned your ambitious goal, and, and I'm sure you'll reach it relatively quickly, your ambitious goal of educating a billion people. I remember Sal Khan from Khan Academy came recently to HBS. Just, you know, it was six, seven months ago, he zoomed in on Klarman with all 700, 800 students in our class and sort of was talking about his vision. And I think Khan Academy just reached 2 billion views in their videos. So I'm thinking, Shiv, you need to come to Klarman and give a talk to the entire HBS class. I think it'd be very, very inspiring for us, especially for the doctors in the class, but I'm sure for everyone as well. So I'll try Thank to make you. that happen, or you should try to make that happen. <laughs> Um, but thank you. We have Sal on our podcast, so maybe I'll send him a note. Uh, I know he was HBS yeah. too, like I think 2004 or something. I forgot exactly when, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, the funniest thing about that and the most somewhat inspiring thing about that is I think he was working at a hedge fund before he decided to make the pivot to Khan Academy. So, hey, the, the world works in mysterious ways. But, you know, really, really love the conversation so far. I had one last question before I hand it on to Alex. Wanted to talk about the Patient Promise project that you and David Gatz have been working on. My understanding is right after medical school, you and your colleague David Gatz started this after reading a Hopkins study that showed that non-overweight docs are more likely to counsel their patients about things like obesity, body mass index, weight loss, lifestyle factors than docs who are themselves struggling with their weight. 
And I know, you know, obesity and overweight and that issue is prevalent even in the physician and clinician and nursing communities. So I'm just curious, you know, can you talk to us a little bit about the project, how it came about, what goals you set to achieve and where it is right now? Yeah, no, happy to. And thanks for doing your research. So yeah, David's a good friend of mine. Uh, We were roommates at Hopkins Med and uh, he was a a college athlete, like uh, national level swimmer. Um, I was pretty big into amateur athletics, did an Ironman, like all sorts of things that we're really excited about. But we've both struggled with our weight, with uh, mental health, uh, depression in the past. And so we realized that, look, you kind of have to fill your own cup first is what they say. Um, And so we have all these physicians and, and nurses, and we've seen this exacerbated because of COVID, kind of prostrating themselves to the profession, right? And and you and your classmates, I'm sure you've seen this, uh, you know, people burning out, uh, unfortunately, doctors committing suicide, nurses leaving the profession, um, that it's one thing to train more people to become healthcare professionals. It's another thing to keep them in the profession. So it isn't like a leaky sieve that we're trying to fill up. And so the patient promise was from evidence-based research showing that not only are clinicians going to be healthier if they can figure out ways to start practicing these self-care rituals and carving up the time. And a lot of this is systemic. So it isn't the physician's or nurse's fault. They just live in a profession that demands, like, you know, we saw this in COVID, uh, demands their time. Like, hey, you know, even though you're sick, maybe come in anyways and start taking care of these patients. So the it's systemic issues, but we wanted to, to, to as medical students, start this initiative, which evolved into Osmosis's Care for Caregivers campaign um, to basically get to bring this, it's partly awareness. So get thousands of people, we got tens of thousands of people to sign this pledge, basically saying, I will take care of my own health. And we kind of said it in a way that was like, okay, because the research shows that not only will this make me healthier and live longer, it also will help me be a better advocate to my patients for behavior design and behavior change, because that's what the research shows. And so even if you don't want to do it for yourself, it'll make you a better clinician, right? Um, it's like use use this product or use that product because it'll make you better at at your job, and you being a more healthy person will make you better at your job. Um, and so it's evolved quite a bit since then. Like a lot of these themes keep coming coming up. Um, so two examples: just yesterday, I had BJ Fogg, who's the head of Stanford's Design Lab, Behavior Design Lab. He wrote the best selling book, Tiny Habits. I had him on our podcast um, talking about these habits, and he he and his uh, team had done a lot of research trying to incorporate positive habits of behavior change in nurses at health systems. Um, and so we're really trying to amplify those kind of systemic changes that hospital administrators and others can take in investing in their the health of their providers. But then also we had uh, Ariana Huffington on our podcast. And uh, out of that came this entire collaboration with her group, Thrive Global, and the Johnson & Johnson Foundation and we did this uh, big push of a nursing resilience course that Osmosis was tapped to develop, which is free for anyone to, to go through. So these themes of self-care, patient promise, like basically advocating for clinicians and patients to be healthier, a lot of preventative medicine themes uh, continue to pop up. And now with the Osmosis platform, where we're the largest health education platform on YouTube, over 2.3 million subscribers, we're able to do a lot more and reach a much bigger audience than when David and I were you know, roommates uh, at Hopkins uh, a decade ago. No, thank you, Shiv, for mentioning that. I, I love what you mentioned about filling your own cup and the caring for the caregivers platform. It's sort of the professional version of the advice that my mom's been giving me my entire life, which is you can't take care of others if you don't take care of yourselves. And it's it's so true. And in a serious note, I actually remember when I graduated from college and came to medical school, it was like the first week of classes. And uh, unfortunately, one of the residents in the hospital our medical school is affiliated with passed away by suicide. It was very, very, very tragic. And my mom actually said, no, you're not entering this profession. Like, let's go home. Like you can do something else. And she was so proud of me to like that. I got into medical school, but that moment that like, I think, you know, parental instincts almost came in where she was like, Hey, no, you need to take care of yourself. I don't know if this is worth it. And so what you're doing is absolutely, absolutely needed and really appreciated by the medical community. Again, amazing conversation so far. I'll just pass it along to Alex to finish us up. Go ahead, Alex. Perfect. Thank you, Shad. And uh, thank you, Chef, so much for providing the insights and telling us more about your journey, which is, to be honest, super inspiring and, and interesting. It's really interesting that kind of how events unfolded like from my side, like for a couple of years, because in 2016, I was a medical student in Syria 
and kind of I was using your platform to, to learn medicine and I was hearing about this project that I think Basil and Lamia, both two good colleagues of mine, started with osmosis to kind of translate all, all these videos to Arabic, which I thought was super cool. And then basically we got connected when I got admitted to HBS and, and now we have you on your podcast. So I'm really happy that that kind of events unfolded this way. One thing that I want to reflect on is the point that you've mentioned that healthcare and healthcare education can learn a lot from Facebook and Netflix. I mean, if we look at these technologies and these applications, I think they've mastered or they are on the process to master the art of driving customer behavior in a specific direction. For Facebook, it is maximizing the time that you spend on the wall, for example. For Netflix, it's maximizing the time that you spend on the platform. And I think that we can take all of these technologies to drive the behavior of the patient towards the better alternatives of behavior, for example, in chronic diseases, or to change the behavior of of practitioners and healthcare providers, as you've mentioned the example on tiny habits. So really appreciate your point there. And I think there's massive opportunities to kind of translate all the innovations and all the cutting edge approaches that we see in the field of tech into the field of digital health and digital therapeutics. I know that you've done work in the space of health policy, and one of the books that I've read recently by Thomas Reed is The Healing of America. And Thomas Reed asks the question of how many people could go bankrupt because of medical bills in different countries. And for example, if you look at at the UK, Japan, Germany, the Netherlands, it is zero. But according to a joint study by Harvard Law School and Harvard Medical School, the number in the U.S., can be up to 700,000 people, which is quite shocking. And I mean, as much as the U.S. healthcare system is innovative, it has a lot of challenges around access. So would love to kind of hear your thoughts on how can we as medical doctors be involved more in healthcare policy decision making so that we shift these decisions from being purely based on the financial uh, metrics and economics towards decisions that optimize for access. So just curious to know your thoughts in general of how can we kind of, as medical doctors, play a positive role in shifting the policy in the right direction? Totally. Well, I think, again, what you guys are doing and what many other physicians turned entrepreneurs turned investors are doing or advocates having a podcast is helpful because uh, many of the people I know who've moved the needle the most in this capacity, some of them take the route of policy advocates. And we've had good, another good friend of mine from med school, Atul Nakasi, uh, is out in L.A. doing wonderful work um, uh, on the policy side. He's always been doing work on the policy side. Actually, when he was at University of Iowa, um, he happened to be there around the time where he resurrected the Iowa College Democrats and was the first to endorse Barack Obama. Uh, so they endorsed Barack Obama back then before he was Senator Obama, and he had a huge impact. I mean, Vivek Murthy, the reason he's Surgeon General, he started Doctors for Obama, which became Doctors for America, and, you know, got this good relationship with Barack Obama. So that's one way to 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 do it, get involved in the in the in the in that aspect of things. But a lot of the doctors I've met have done it in interesting ways where they've started companies. So we've had several people on the Raise Line podcast who have done this, uh, Rushika Fernandapali whom you both may know, he started Iora Health. Uh, Christopher Chen started ChedMed, or his, his family started ChenMed. These are two of the, or another one of my favorite uh, individuals, Richard Park, a physician uh, out in New York, started um, CityMD, the largest chain of, uh, uh, of urgent care clinics in, in New York. So these three physician leaders uh, took their clinical experience and their interest in, in changing medicine, created companies around them, uh, and these companies have been the leaders at both consumer-centric medicine. So again, like CityMD, it's on every block. It's very con- consumer-friendly. They try keeping prices low. Same with um, a lot of other consumer-driven innovations. Digital health, has, has we've been seeing that. We had Anwar Jiski on our podcast, who was like the pioneer of direct-to-consumer genetics with 23andMe. And then um, the others, like Rushika and Chris, have been advocating for value-based medicine for many, many, many years, right? So the capitated model, let's get away from fee-for-service, let's go towards value-based medicine. It's one thing to go through Medicare, Medicaid to change that, and people have done that very successfully. It's another thing to actually build a model that works, uh, where it's like, okay, we have $2,000 per head, that's the capitation, and we as a as a clinic have to then align our incentives so that we're providing the most care for the least amount of dollars, 
um, most efficiently. So yeah, if my patient doesn't have a good, they're living in a place that's filled with asbestos and their kids have asthma and all these lung issues, let's figure out the social determinants or the drivers of healthcare uh, that'll play into that. Um, if they're having movement issues, instead of going straight to the monoclonal antibodies, let's go towards physical exercise and Tai Chi, which Chris Chen and, and, and Chen Med do. So I think that's one of the ways, and, and again, listening to podcasts like yours, starting to innovate, being uh, humble, though, knowing that uh, physicians and, and, and HBS grads uh, you know, don't have all the answers that we can learn directly from their con- communities. That's pretty key. Um, so having an open mind. But I think those are the two models I've seen be most successful, either go directly into policy or uh, like, uh, you know, run for office, join the HHS or CMS, um, or the other approach is, is build a company or join a company that's doing some interesting stuff. Perfect. Thank you, Shiv. That's a very interesting point. I guess just building and reflecting on it, I think it is fascinating to see how the incentives and structure of a system can drive the behavior of the participants in that system in the right or wrong direction. And I think just trying to create that right incentive framework is so important. And like, I don't know how we have been living for 30, 40 years with a fee-for-service system. Like it is fundamentally flawed, right? It just creates the incentive to maximize the utilization, which is very frequently unnecessary of healthcare. So really appreciate your point on that perspective. Now I want to shift the conversation a little bit uh, to education. So as I've mentioned previously, I really used your your platform heavily when I was a medical student in Syria, and I think it solved one of the access to quality education issues. So for example, a lot of medical students, they wanted access to quality English language-based medical education. So medical education in Syria was in Arabic. Uh, So like you can finish medical school, but it would be very difficult to actually go and practice in another country if you haven't studied the parallel curriculum of medicine in English. Just as an illustration, like if you wanted to get a USMLE first aid book, it was $50, right? And the salary of a medical resident in Syria at that time was like $30, $40. So it was prohibitively expensive. So platforms like Osmosis or Khan Academy can really facilitate access to education. And there's so many medical doctors who are currently going through the education system in low-middle income countries. There's massive amounts of need uh, for medical doctors and for healthcare professionals in low-middle in- income countries. And we're, we're seeing trend like task shifting, where because the system is not churning enough medical doctors, we're kind of shifting a lot of the tasks to physician assistants or other categories of healthcare professionals. And I guess my question is, from your experience with osmosis, and, and as, as you've mentioned, for example, I really like the Lancet article that was published by Lamia and Basel Amin, uh, on the impact of osmosis in Syria and on the Syrian medical students. But yeah, based on that experience and other experiences, how do you think we can use technology to improve access to quality education in low-middle-income countries and kind of help medical students and healthcare professionals take their skills up to the next level? Like, I know all of these medical professionals in low-middle-income countries are committed but they don't have the access to the resources. So really curious to know your thoughts on how we can solve that inefficiency. Yeah, that's a great question. Fortunately, technology is on our side, right? Like um, bandwidths have increased, mobile access has increased. And so, you know, with, with things like Skynet, um, uh, Scott Starlink from Elon, Elon Musk and, and crew coming on lo- online in the coming years or Project Loon from Google, I think uh, bandwidth constraints will, will be gone over time. I, I firmly believe, you know, in two things. Um, one, so our podcast is called a raised line, right? How do we improve healthcare? Some of that's policy changes. A lot of that, what we're focused on at osmosis and Elsevier is training healthcare professionals. We work with hundreds of medical nursing PA schools. We want to augment them. We want to make it possible for more people at a lower cost to gain access to quality education and actually get their degrees and, and faster access or get through the didactic portions faster so they can focus on the patient care. Um, and and share decision-making and all the soft skills that we know make for good medicine. Um, so that's raising the line. That's improving healthcare capacity. The other side of it is flattening the curve, right, which we all heard way back in 2020 ad nauseum. Uh, how do we get more people to socially or physically distance, to wear masks, to get vaccinated? And one of the core tenets of Elsevier Health, and one reason we're excited about joining them, is they have this, uh, one of the five core things they're focused on is battling the infodemic. Right. So we've seen firsthand how, you know, deaths and long term uh, COVID issues and uh, respiratory failure, all these things have skyrocketed costs and they could be easily prevented 
if people masked and were and gotten vac- got vaccinated. That's not just a COVID issue. If people you know ate healthier, there'd be less diabetes, less need for endocrinologists. If people uh, took their full antibiotic regimens, there'd be less hospitalizations. Uh, if people, uh, there's a, you could go down the list. So essentially, we believe in education, not just helping train doctors, PAs, NPs, nutritionists. Let's go all the way to the patient. Let's make the patient more engaged in their own health and that of their family. Literally, the vision of, uh, the vision of osmosis is um, everyone who cares for someone will learn about osmosis. And basically, the reason we called we, we borrowed that from Nike, which was Nike's is to provide inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. And there's an asterisk of an athlete where it says, if you have a body, you're an athlete, right? So every one of us could be an athlete and or a Nike customer. Similarly, you know, you, you two are physicians, um, so you obviously care for patients. But even if you weren't, even if you're just listening to this and you're a student or you're a parent, um, you know, you have a body or you love people who have bodies. And so you can care for them or care for your own health. And so we want you watching an osmosis video on uh, on diabetes or on proper nutrition or on intermittent fasting um, on behavior change, because ultimately, the more engaged our populace is, the more literate they are with healthcare, the less clinicians will need and the less expensive healthcare will be. Thanks, Jeff. That's very inspiring. And I absolutely agree with you in terms of the need to broaden the access to the right information. And especially that we've seen the devastating impact of misinformation and how when that misinformation is mixed with predictive algorithms from social media platforms that can create really a bad mix. So I guess maybe shifting the gears a little bit to medical education in high-income countries. I know you've co-authored a an article with Dr. Eric Topol, and in his book, Deep Medicine, he mentions that the role of AI is, or one of the biggest values of AI, is to reduce the workload, uh, the unnecessary workload of clinicians and restore that patient-clinician relations relationship, which I think is a very interesting point. And it speaks to certainly one of the potentials that we can get from AI if implemented correctly. But I guess like this speaks to all the transformation that is happening in healthcare today, right? Like if we look at the biotech space and all the innovation that's available from the biotech industry, it is transformative. If we look at at health informatics and bioinformatics, like there has been so much change over the last 10 years. And within that, the context of that change, like I feel medical education is not catching up and we're still training medical doctors in the same way that we trained them like maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. What do you think are maybe the top one to three things that need to change within the context of modern medical education to make sure that kind of medical doctors are graduating in a way that is up to speed with technology in a way that encourages their entrepreneurial potential in a way that improves their team working skills. So we would love to know kind of your mental model and how we think about this point. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think the number one thing is competency-based education. Like we need to get to a point, like the vision we have, I, I gave a TEDx talk about this a couple of years ago, could you get an MD online? And it's obviously a provocative title because, you know, you need to ultimately see patients, especially if you're going to be, say, a surgeon, you can't do that fully online. Nobody wants to go see a surgeon who's never never done surgery or touched a patient. However, uh, the didactic portions, as you all well know, you know how many times have we all learned about the citric acid cycle and the same stuff, and how many times do you actually use that in medicine, especially in an age where information is everywhere and maybe too much information, so it's more about how you apply that information. So number one is competency-based, where let's shorten how long it takes to become a clinician for those who want Let's make it possible for anybody anywhere to go through at least the didactic portions of, of medical nursing, PA, any program they want based on their skill level. And they could do this in one year. They could do this in six months. They could do this in 10 years, depending on what, what they want uh, to accomplish, and then have faster pathways for them to go and get the clinical experience, which is going to be more likely because of AR, VR simulation companies. I mean, even Elsevier, they have SurePath, which is a total simulation around nursing patient, edu- uh, patient simulation. And so let's let's use technology to make it competency based and make it possible for anybody anywhere to get this world class health education. Um, and then some of them will wind up actually going into programs where they then see patients and and go through um, the actual training to then get their license. Um, but those who don't do that know a lot about their own health and then can hopefully apply that. That's why we're seeing the rises of 
health coaches and um, you know companies like Headspace and 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 Better and Calm. They can't hire psychologists fast enough. They're all kind of competing for mental health and counselor talent. Same with Twenty Three and Me. We made a course for them and with them on genetics education for physicians because there's a shortage of genetic counselors around the world. Um, so there's shortages everywhere. So that's one competency based education. Number two, aligning the incentives again. Right, like. It makes no sense to saddle our future healthcare professionals with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, which can influence their specialty, definitely influences their stress. Um, that's why, you know, a friend of ours, the white coat investor, Jim Daly, is so popular because he gets to med students when they have all this debt and has great content around how to reduce that stress and, and anxiety around debt. But it does, you know, we can't call people healthcare heroes and still not fund their education in ways that make sense. Uh, so that's number two. Uh, and number three, I mean, systemic, it is, you know, healthcare education won't be fully fixed until healthcare is fully fixed, right? So if healthcare is fully fixed through value-based, through consumer-driven, um, uh, through uh, better payment models, um, through more engaged and more responsible populace, right? Like our populace, one thing, not to get too philosophical, but we all want, at least in the U.S., it's very much about individual freedom above all else, but you can't have individual freedom without personal responsibility. So yeah, you're free to, to to do whatever you want to your body, to not wear a seatbelt, to not wear a helmet when you're on a motorbike on the highway going 80 miles an hour. But the personal responsibility should be you wear a seatbelt, you you watch your diet, you you know, and this is not a popular thing. People like Michael Bloomberg tried to make that clear. But we have a healthcare system where, you know, even now with COVID, we're seeing this. People who followed all the rules, who need, you know, have a heart attack or they had scheduled um, uh, procedures, elective procedures are getting displaced because of, you know, 20, 30% of the population who haven't taken a vaccine, even though it's been available for over a year, year and a half. So individual freedom versus personal responsibility. And that, that gets into a lot of psych, you know, deep philosophy, but we can't fix healthcare education until we fix healthcare. And we won't fix healthcare until we, as a populace, understand this distinction between personal freedom and individual responsibility. Uh, Chef, thank you for sharing that. And I think I really like the point that you've made initially, and it seems like we need to decentralize medical education. And I think this reminds me of a point that Sal Khan also made, uh, that the current model of education is fixed time variable competency, but we want to shift into a model that is fixed competency at variable time. So I think it's a very interesting shift in how we think about education and certainly appreciate that you've shared that. Maybe shifting the last mm. question to a place that we all, I think, are very big fans of, HBS. And HBS, like, it's very easy to make magical connections happen. And I think, for example, like how Shad and I like met each other, started this podcast, and it's very easy to make also kind of magical leaps in your career. So a lot of medical doctors come into HBS without significant prior experience. And because of the large alumni community, because of the exposure to medical doctors who've pursued a career outside the traditional clinical path, you can understand how to seek these career opportunities and get them. But that is not necessarily true for people outside the major hubs of Boston, New York, San Francisco, London, etc. I'm, I'm speaking here about medical students and early career professionals in low middle income countries where you don't have access to examples of people and mentors who did medicine and then pursued the career path outside of it. So, Shiv, I'm curious to know your thoughts. How can medical students in low and middle income countries who do not necessarily have access to these precedents, think about achieving impact outside the beaten path and how can they reach out to, to folks who have done that before? How can they build that network? How do they think about where to get started? would love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's something very personal, very close to my heart. Um, having done, done this for some years and, and done a lot of mentorship for, for students, so, you know, I actually have a whole, like, everyone who joins Osmosis goes through this workshop I put together called How to Build Relationships Through the Osmosis Values. Um, happy to share a link uh, in, the, in the notes here, too. And I'm, later this year, I'll be releasing, like, a newsletter with a course on, on, on this exact topic of how to maximize and improve your, your network in an authentic way that adds value to, to everyone, um, especially because we live in such a polarized and disconnected world. So 
I think about this, I, I call it the CARE framework, C-A-R-E. So C is curious. So first get curious about someone. So, you know, even this, uh, right before we chatted, you were, you know, the reason this podcast was fun is that you guys did your research and I know a lot about you uh, and your backgrounds. And, you know, we use LinkedIn to better understand each other and, and did the research. So we're curious. Number a, a is appreciate. So express appreciation for the people. Uh, obviously, Alex, the fact that you used osmosis was awesome and you expressed appreciation at the beginning of the podcast and in the in the invite. Um, and so I love that as a way to build relationships. I, I'm still in touch with my HBS professors, people like Frank Suspedes and Mark Roberge. And certainly when we sold Osmosis, I you know reached out back to them. They reached out to me. There was a lot of appreciation. R is remember. It's one thing to get curious about somebody or appreciate them. It's another thing to actually remember who they were and 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 come back and uh, and and cultivate that network. It's like forming a synapse. Uh, you know, you can synapses and memories will die unless you cultivate it, unless you keep remembering or keep, uh, keep cleaning out that synapse and, and activating it. And then last one is engage. E is engage. So anyone who listened to this podcast, who spent 30 minutes or 60 minutes listening to the podcast, that's step one. And I'm glad you learned from it. I hope you got took away from it. But step two, and the one that differentiates you is you, any podcast you listen, whether it's this one, or you're listening to Tim Ferriss, talk to Cal Newport, which was a podcast I listened to this past week, you engage, you actively Go out and you look them up on LinkedIn. You send them a note on on email. You take that next step because you just spent 30 to 60 minutes. At a minimum, what you can do is send them a note. And I'm easily accessible. I'm shiv at osmosis.org. I'm on LinkedIn, pretty active there. And so take that next step to engage because most people don't do that. Um, and you, you don't have to go to HBS to get an awesome network. Uh, and I know a lot of people who did go to HBS who didn't cultivate a network. Um, so it really is about what you put in and, and how you act when you're there. Uh, and certainly it's something I feel very closely to. So I encourage any of the listeners of this podcast, not only are you guys providing them a good resource by exposing them to these stories of people who've taken uh, not the beaten, who've gone off the beaten path uh, in healthcare and tech and entrepreneurship, but also, um, uh, you know, hopefully they connect with people, some of your guests who are very receptive and very open to, to mentorship and supporting the, the entire ecosystem. Thank you, Shiv. This reminds me of a point that came on our podcast multiple times, which is that effective mentorship relations start with a mentorship dynamic and then go towards a friendship dynamic. So I certainly appreciate your point in terms of like cultivating that network and making sure that you build those friendships and connections. My last question is just to finish off, how can our audience learn more about all the impact and the interesting projects that, that you're doing and how can they reach out? Yeah, the easiest way is just look up Shiv Gaglani on LinkedIn. Super easy. I think I'm the only one uh, on LinkedIn, maybe in the world. Uh, it's an unusual name. Uh, number two is Shiv at Osmosis.org if they want to email me. And number three is, um, you know, go to Osmosis.org. I mean, if again, if you have a body, there's some content on there or YouTube.com forward slash Osmosis that could be useful. And, you know, taking that next step and actually maybe even watching an Osmosis video or doing some research, I'm much more likely to reply if like, you know, oh, I listen to Alex and Chad and Physicians Off the Beaten Path interview. So like make it a little more personal, do some research. And as I said, get curious, appreciate, remember, and engage the care framework, I call it, for building a relationship and actually being noticed when you do reach out and engage with somebody. Awesome. Thank you, Shiv. It was a fantastic conversation. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you both for the opportunity. Thank you again. Chad, that was such a great conversation with Shiv. I really enjoyed it. And my main takeaway from the episode is the point around decentralization of education. I think if we look at how university courses and university education has been structured, we can see that there is a lot of centralization in that process, meaning that you pursue a specific degree and you need to fulfill X amount of requirements and go through a specific workflow or educational flow of classes to get to that degree. I think the interesting trend to observe today is that we can decentralize that education, meaning that we have a lot of online resources that would help us get parts of that education without necessarily being involved in a formal degree program. So you can learn to code on DataCamp. You can learn about cryptocurrencies on a bunch of online uh, resources. You can learn about biology and medicine through a platform like Osmosis. This doesn't necessarily give you the degree of a medical doctor, but it gives you a lot of the necessary skills and 
kind of maybe in the future there will be certification programs or like your kind of like capabilities and knowledge are tested. But I think my point goes towards decentralization of education. And I think today in the face of a rapidly changing healthcare environment where the formal education system may not necessarily be providing you with the latest up-to-date information on a specific kind of development area like AI or gene therapy or biotechnology, it is very important to utilize this, this this opportunity for decentralized education. So I quite really enjoyed that point. And I think like you don't need to be necessarily in the best university to get the best education. Like with the resources available today, you can structure that for yourself. Uh, over to you, Shad. Yeah, I really appreciate that point. Alex, and in a similar vein, I, you know, I didn't sort of conceptualize it as such, but you can think about decentralization of the networking process. And I'll sort of mention what I mean by that. But the first thing I wanted to talk about is the importance of a network. This isn't intuitive to folks who are in clinical medicine, but very intuitive and important to people who are broadly speaking in the business world. It wasn't necessarily intuitive to me before I came to the business school here at, uh, at HBS, but networking is actually important. At least your network is very important. If you think about getting stuff done as sort of the output or a chemical reaction, then networking reduces the energy of activation for all of those chemical reactions. It just makes things easier, right? If you need to speak with someone at a particular company and you don't know anyone there, you might have to send 30 emails to get to that person. If you know someone who knows someone there, that's a five-minute phone call to get to that person. And that rapidly speeds up your chance of success, your cycles of iteration. It's very important. You need to think about it in that granular of a fashion. And now that we've established that networking is incredibly important, I think it's important to talk about how you can get that network. And Shiv did an incredibly good job outlining this. Of course, a place like HBS or or whatever school you went to is going to be a central component of that. It facilitates that networking process relatively easily. But there's other ways to get that network. You don't have to be at HBS. You don't have to be at GSB. You don't have to be at a particular top medical school or undergrad to be able to get that, right? He mentioned the care process. C, being curious, which is when you genuinely are curious about different topics, different people. A is appreciating them when you reach out to them. R is you know, remembering them down the line at some point or remembering someone you met previously and, and making that connection along the way and then engaging with them. Shiv gave a perfect example of most people after listening to this podcast won't actually reach out to him, right? But be part of that one or 2% of people who actually reach out to him and, and connect with him in, in a personalized way. So again, I wanted to establish how important the network actually is uh, because it's not intuitive to a lot of docs and, and medical students. And I wanted to establish that there's a way you can actually get it without having to go to HBS. For our audience members, join us next episode for more conversations with really amazing physicians who have ventured off the beaten path. And remember to follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at POTBP Podcast and to catch our latest episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. To get in touch with us, you can always email us at physiciansoffthebeatenpath at gmail.com or visit our website at potbppodcast.com.